Today I have with me Jen Spira and Charlie Parrish. And these are two of the most amazing people I've ever met that I never get to hang out oh with. God. Oh God. How about that? Now, this is, of course, the part of the program where I forgot to introduce Jen Spira because that's what I do sometimes. So if you're wondering why you don't hear Jen in the background reacting to all the wonderful things I'm about to say about her, uh, it's because she wasn't there. So just imagine in your head Jen Spira sitting at home going, oh, God, oh, my God, Jenny, oh, and proceed to listen to this. Jen Spira is a senior writer for The Onion, and she also helps helm a lot of The Onion's video content. And I just thought that instead of telling you how much I love all her articles are just read you some of the things that she's written for the onion which include family watching movie white knuckles it through unexpected sex scene david bowie asks iman if they should just do lasagna again and my personal favorite nothing gets me wetter than a monotonous domestic routine so you should check some of those out she's also written for mcsweeney's uh, including the epically titled a teenager tries to make the best of hosting her middle ages themed party at the same time as her older brother's lacrosse team kegger so that's spira I'm going to tell you a little bit about Charlie Parrish because Jen Spira has never met Charlie before this moment. Charlie's never met Jen. Charlie's an actor, a stuntman, a stunt coordinator, a military advisor for movies, and a Texan. Charlie Parrish helps run a school that trains people in jujitsu, and he spent four years as an army infantryman. Wow, where? First year in Korea and the rest of my time with the 101st Airborne Division, primarily out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And Charlie, tell me what you're doing now. I still work as a stunt coordinator and stuntman for film and television. Uh, as a matter of fact, two of the shows that I worked on most recently both come out in March. Uh, one is called American Crime. I uh, worked on it as a stuntman and then handled the last three episodes as the stunt coordinator. And then uh, another one called In an Instant, which is a reenactment show for, I believe, ABC News, where we reenacted a, a crime that took place a a few years ago. So today's topic is fear. And sometimes I start these off with definition because it helps me really get what we're talking about because it's such a big word and it goes so many places. Fear is an unpleasant emotion caused by being aware of danger. But I found this other interesting definition, which is fear as a feeling of respect and wonder for something very powerful. It's reverential awe, which is often how I feel about Charlie Pash <laughs> and often how I feel uh, about Jen Spira. And so I feel oh like it's gosh. very appropriate. The thing you should know about me is that I live in constant fear of everything. Um, I have fear of noises. I have a fear of screwing up, misunderstandings, people not liking me. I have a fear of honesty and its consequences. I fear not achieving my life's greatest dream as much as I fear actually achieving my life's greatest dream. Uh, I'm scared of roaches, mountain lions, and deep space asteroids. And this is just a few. And when I was young, all these little super fears got together and they formed a team inside my brain and you could call them the fear vengers. And so <laughs> if I ever wanted to do or say anything risky, all of my super fears converged and they would examine the proposed risk from all angles. And like the actual Avengers, they all had a lot of different opinions. So often this would leave me completely frozen. And Did you actually call them the Fear Avengers? No, or, this is a later okay. word. Because if I knew okay. the Avengers at that age, I would be the coolest kid alive. But I did right. not. 
Right. Okay. Um, so like the plan would get forwarded to the boutique PR firm that was also located in my brain, which would examine how it would weigh the outside world. So like, are you exhausted yet? Because I was. <laughs> <laughs> and the weird thing is, is like these fears never stopped me from doing anything. I mean, I used to walk like alone in Manhattan at night in the early 90s. When I was a camp counselor, I would lead kids down one of the most dangerous rapids on the Delaware. We were in canoes. I didn't think anything of it. So all this is to say that I end up in a job at a national broadcast news company right out of college. It's one of those ones with the three distinguished letters. And this happened to be the one where Ed Murrow used to work. Now, I had studied print journalism in college, and this had left me completely unprepared for any of the technical aspects of broadcast journalism, like editing or satellites or light switches. Um, so CBS News Radio is really good at turning dummies like me into functional journalists. I ended up on the TV side on the CBS Foreign Desk. And my job there was to be the point of contact for reporters in international places. So my job was to shepherd them through this Byzantine process of getting themselves on the morning news. So I learned a lot about handling the daily grind of how to cover stories. It was like journalism by proxy. But if there was one thing I was really good at, on the foreign desk was fear by proxy because my life in New York City was never in danger, but I was constantly terrified for the people that were putting their own lives on the line in countries all around the world. So we're getting there. We're getting there to actual story. Um, no, to the, yeah, we're just, it's just all preamble. I'm this, yeah. So in 2002, I moved to the CBS LA Bureau and I become their associate producer, the very least in a long line of amazing associate producers. And that's when fear by proxy morphs into actual first-person Jenny Josephson-centric terror. Because it turns out I have no idea how to produce television. Because there's only so much you can learn through the telephone. So my first year at CBS News LA is tough. I'm working with these reporters, producers, editors. Everywhere I look at this company, there are legends. And I live in reverential awe of all of them. And of course, we just learned the other word for reverential awe, which is fear. Reverential awe is the worst because all of your own instincts take second place to what you think these journalistic superheroes would do. And these are people who like know exactly what they need from an associate producer, which means that something as quick as like a drive over to the Bonham and Butterfield's auction house in LA for a one person interview is enough to like spike my fear to record levels because I don't know how to do interviews. My first time down at the LA Superior Court, there's like a bunch of journalists trapped in a dingy building waiting for news about a dog mauling trial. And they all know what to do because they all covered OJ. I don't know what to do. Blah. And then Elizabeth Smart disappeared in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I was there and the levels of daily fear and terror enough to send me to the hospital, which they don't, but it was close. And it didn't help that we were working out of an RV that was parked on a hill. So my brain always felt like it was sliding forward and banging up against my skull. Where in Utah? Yeah. You were working in, on it like, oh my God, wow. In Salt Lake City, Utah. And so most of the time I'm with people and I can just help out. But this story stretches on, and so soon it's just me and a freelance crew keeping an eye on developments, and that is, like, horrifying. And I remember all the network heavies, CBS, NBC, MSN, they all stayed at the Grand America Hotel, which had been built for the Olympics. And it was this time when, you remember Ashley Banfield? She was this, like, hot yeah. shot. 
it was like right around the time when she was peaking in popularity and she spent a lot of time running around the lobby of the Grand America with her cell phone to her ear saying things like, yeah, it's breaking now. Send a crew. We need a crew. And nothing is more scary to me than being the lone editorial representative up against the Ashley Banfield MSNBC machine. So all this is to say, I was scared. I cried on the phone to my friends, to Matt. And really all it was is like, I was scared because I was inexperienced. I was scared because I was looking stupid. And I was scared because I was in the company of these legends of broadcastia. So thank you for being patient while I describe my fear. Here's how I cracked it. This big lesson of how not to be afraid while being a journalist happened as they usually do in this very small moment very early in my stint in the LA Bureau, but it took me a long time to put it together. And it happened on the way to this interview at Bonham and Butterfields. So I'm sitting in the passenger seat of a giant crew SUVs filled with 800 tons of gear and the cameraman's name is Tony. And Tony's this like, super ripped thin guy and he's always walking around in flip-flops carrying 40 pounds of gear and he has one hell of like a bushy 80s mustache that like almost curled up at the end and he has this incredibly deep authoritative voice and lots of stories about crouching behind cars during shootouts in front of nightclubs and Sunset Boulevard in the 80s and so this interview is like couldn't possibly be any simpler right but I'm terrified because I have no idea how to conduct an interview and Tony's talking while we're driving towards this place and I'm thinking like Oh, God, what do I do? Finally, just in this epic moment, I pipe up and I'm like, um, so Tony, here's the thing. I come from New York and I'm off the assignment desk and I'm really good at helping people who are doing lots of things in the field. But I have to be honest, I've done almost nothing and I don't know what to do. And I sort of give him this sad little smile and a sad little shrug like I suck. <laughs> and there's this long silence and I'm like really terrified because you know, even in my limited experience so far, I'd already run into camera people who would not take this well. So Tony just looks at me with his big 80s mustache and his like face that's seen every bad thing in L.A. And he says, don't worry, I'll take care of you. And he did. He like placed me physically in the right position next to the camera. And he nudged me when I got in the frame, but in a nice way. And he made sure to ask the one question that I didn't know I needed to ask, which was, is there anything that I haven't asked you that I should have? And of course, that's always the soundbite. And slowly, without even realizing it, I developed and advanced this admit ignorance with a smile strategy. And I used it at the dog mauling trial down at the court with a local news producer from our affiliate who must have been thinking, so this is what it takes to get to network? Who's this dummy? And I survived that. And I learned that the crew will forgive you anything if you just feed them. So I fed my crews. But it took me until the Elizabeth Smart disappearance to figure out the final part of my fear conquering plan. And it's all thanks to Ashley Banfield. One night, I'm coming back from an interview in some sad, awful part of Outer Salt Lake when I'm dirty and grimy and sweaty. And there's like perfect Ashley Banfield still in her network makeup, surrounded by entourage, sitting in the lobby of the Grand America having a drink. And she looks relaxed for once. And I'm just like so annoyed to be the only person there in Salt Lake for CBS at that time. So I pick up my cell phone and I hold it to my ear and I pick up my pace and I just start chugging it through the Grand America lobby and I start walking right by Ashley Banfield and right as I pass her I say, you need to put me through to the national desk right now because this won't hold. And I stare at her dramatically and I walk on by. 
Oh my God. <laughs> so as it turns out, the third way to conquer fear is bullshit. Just yeah. bullshit. Yeah. So this ends up being my three-part strategy, and it worked really well for a long time, but then ultimately, I would go to Eagle, Colorado to cover Kobe Bryant, and I would go to Walmart with Tony, this cameraman who was like second dad, and we'd go to the like checkout line at the Walmart, and I'd get out my Amex, swipe and pay for whatever, and he would grab my Amex and swipe it for me. Because, like, I was the girl who needed help. I know. I can already, I can already see Spyro the Feminist being like, what? But it just, I had, was in that trap of being the person who needed the help. And so eventually I left CBS and fell out into the wide world and had all new kinds of fear. But that was it. That was my three-part strategy. Just admit you don't know it, ask for help, and bullshit your way through anything else. So there you oh. go. Jenny, that's so good. And also, like, it's white people problems, right? First of all, I'm not in a war zone. My big problem is that I don't know how to do an interview. These are not serious problems. but And we're talking to Charlie here, who who's, like, just looking at me like, come on. <laughs> so anyway, wow. that's my deal. That's, I mean. Yeah, well, it, it's funny because your approach to fear is, it's legitimate fear. And it's a legitimate approach to, to getting past it. At least you're honest enough to say, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And that's great. Most people hear that honesty and they're like, wow, I don't know that I'm that brave to say that. That's a much more fearless approach than you give yourself credit for. I've seen other people approach fear differently, which is bluster their way through it and yell at people and just cover up what they don't know with their own anger and force of being. But I didn't have that. I had a stomach that ached whenever I like was vaguely dishonest about my level of knowledge of anything. So I really had no choice. But fortunately, what I did have was an amazing Italian cameraman with an 80s mustache to get me through wow. it. <laughs> oh my God, I love that man. Yeah, I know. I had like all cameraman dads because that's the thing. Like yeah. the LA Bureau was so tight knit that once they even accepted you a little bit, they taught me everything. Well, you know, actually, it's funny. The first, the second one you said, the admitted and ask. I mean, like that, when I've noticed that people do that, I mean, it's, I find it to be such a huge power play. I mean, when someone's able to like admit in front of a group that they don't know something, it's like, wow, like that's so confident. And actually, I feel like I usually do the bullshitty thing because I really don't feel that thing in my stomach about lying at all. So it's like always a question of like, which is the better power move to lie or to just admit it and god i'm like so impressed with people when they just admit they don't know something big yeah but at the same time i live in constant terror of everything around me <laughs> so there's you know and then i'm forced to tell everybody about it because i can't so it hasn't it. it hasn't kind of like dissipated like it's still the same level of like anxiety and fear much like the actual avengers whose lives got even more complicated the more they got into the comic books. My fears have multiplied and gained strength and started fighting with each other even more to the point where the only thing they can agree on is to sit on the couch and watch television with my husband. So, <laughs> you know, the whole thing about the foreign desk and fear by proxy never left me. The crippling thing is all the things I'm afraid of for other people. I think that's just like too many years of having people getting on a brightly colored bus in Jalalabad to go over to Afghanistan because that's the only way over and just that hours of not knowing what's happening Whoa. on the bus which Charlie Was I imagine there... like you know this feeling 
yeah, and I, I agree with you. I, I'm I'm more concerned for other people, be it stunt guys or my friends that are still serving that are in harm's way. I I'm more concerned about that than I've ever been for first person danger. It's just my approach is very different. I have a hard time imagining you having any fear at all. Okay, I see fear as a, a very different entity than most people. Do I have the physiological effects of fear, the adrenaline dump, the heightened sense of awareness, the rapid heart rate? I have all of those things. But my psychological approach to it is very different. I recognize those things as what they are. Okay, I'm in danger. What are my options? So it's not the same psychological fear because I've already game played in my head all of what those options are. And, you know, most people's fight or flight instinct generally runs to flight. Mine's wired backwards. Hmm. I've always fought first and figured it out after. Hmm. And a lot of that comes from my upbringing. If you guys think I'm confident and unstoppable, you should have met my mom. Um, my mom, there was not a human being in the world she was afraid of. She pulled a gun on Ike Turner back in what? the 60s. What? Please tell. She, she and Ike Turner were on the same construction crew in Dallas. Tina Turner was going to beauty school at the time. And like normal construction crews, Friday night, they'd all go to the bar and have a drink. And one night, Tina came in, and Ike was on the prod, and they got into a fight, and he slapped her, and my mom got up and got in between them. Oh, And she my. looked him in the eye and said, if you ever hit that woman where I can see you, I'll shoot Never. you where you stand. And he reached to go around her, and she pulled her pistol out of her purse, stuck it against his nose, and said, do you want me to make that tonight? Oh and Ike backed up and left the bar. And she turned to Tina and said, if I were you, I'd leave that son of a bitch. Oh, my God. And she put her gun back in her purse and sat back down. Years later, I'm sitting on the couch with my mom. We're watching Oprah because Tina Turner's on. And it's right after the movie What's Love Got to Do With This came out. And Tina told the story about the night one of Ike's coworkers, a woman, pulled a gun on him and told her she should leave him. And I'm sitting there in awe looking at my mom like, uh, and she just looked at me and went, yeah, I told her. That's like a whole wow. deleted scene to the Tina Turner movie with Charlie's Seriously? mom in it. Like, they should have shot that in the movie. Oh, my God. Yeah, my, my mom was a different lady. Oh, amazing. Wow. Was she single? Was your dad around? Um, my mom, uh, her first husband was a truck driver, so he wasn't around a lot. And he oh died in a trucking accident. Hmm. She had three kids with him, and then she married my father and had my sister and I. And they divorced when I was yeah. two. So she raised five rowdy Texas kids all by herself in the 60s. She was It was a co-ed construction group? I've never seen that. Well, yeah. I mean, let, let me put it in different terms. My oldest sister drove a truck for UPS. She was trained to shoot by an FBI weapons instructor. My middle sister was in the Cowgirl Hall of Fame, one of four women ever nominated the Cowboy Hall of Fame. My youngest sister has worked as a blasting foreman for a pipeline, as a heavy equipment operator for an underground silver mine, as a lineman for an electric company. I've seen my mom and two of my sisters not grown men out with a single punch. And there's not a single pansy-ass loser in your litter? (laughs) Yeah, not really. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Well, we're Irish and Comanche. Oh, my God. Yeah, it kind of makes for a lively household. You know, it makes all my inward fear about social acceptance in a major network kind of silly. But 
Oh my god, Jenny, yeah, seriously, you need to delete your story. <laughs> or just put it on a different one. I know. <laughs> and he hasn't even, you haven't even done your story, Charlie. Oh my gosh. I know. All right, so with all that, who wants to go next, Spira? <laughs> well, God, I'm on, I mean, I'm high on Charlie right now. I want, I want, I, I, I feel like we should just go with that. All right, but remember... <laughs> You have to follow him. I know. It's going to be so bad, but it might be like funny how bad that <laughs> drop off is. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks. And I wanted to give you guys the story of the only time I can remember actually being afraid in the conventional sense. <laughs> no wait does this take wow. place in a jungle or a desert neither it takes place in central elementary school <laughs> i was cast as frosty the snowman <laughs> so second grade i got cast as frosty the snowman in the school play it was great first time on stage nailed the lead i am the title character all good <laughs> Loving it. Loving the rehearsal process. <laughs> I know my song. I know my little dance. I know the music. I'm excited. And every time we do it, I'm spot on. I, I have fun. And then comes performance night. And we're backstage. I'm in my unif my frosty outfit. And uh, <laughs> I happen to peek out of the curtains to see if I can see my mom. And the whole auditorium is full of people. Oh. Nobody said anything about an audience. Nothing. So I'm scared to death. I, I, I'm terrified. I'm in tears. I'm thinking, I can't do this. There are people out there. And the little girl that was my understudy was my nemesis in second grade. <laughs> I don't hate easily. She was the first. She runs up to the teacher and she goes, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll be frosty. And that changed everything. And I pushed her aside and went, no, I'm frosty. <laughs> so... The, the thing I use to get over my one and only conventional fear, my first and last bit of stage fright, was just outright anger. Classic uh, strategy. Yeah. yeah. It, the uh, fight. The fight. But yeah, that's, that's what it was. I had to find a way to fight. I couldn't fight all those people in the audience because I liked most of them, but I didn't like her. So that, that worked out. What grade were you in? Second. So you're in second grade. You I was the kid. smallest kid in school until I graduated high school. Wow. Let me ask you a question, uh, second grade Frosty. Tell us a little bit about what happened after you were in school. When did you end up in the U.S. military? Because I'm, I'm sort of curious that this moment of stage fright fear is the last recognizable moment of fear that you have in your memory. I want to test this theory. Well, let me, let me give you a little background. Yeah. Like I said, I was the smallest kid in school. So I was an easy target for bullies. And my mom said, well, you've, you've got two choices. You can run or you can fight back. But if you run, you'll run the rest of your life. And I didn't feel like I had that much energy. So I decided to fight. Once I made that decision, she said, you know what? If you're going to fight, pick the biggest one. Go Prison after rules. him. Because he probably doesn't fight right. as well. And if you beat him, nobody else is going to bother you. If you don't, nobody else is going to bother you because you're crazy enough to jump on him. Prior Frosty, I'd also already died once. What? Yeah, I was bitten by an, an insect that we have down in Texas called an asp, uh, like the snake, and had an allergic reaction and flatlined on the table and was brought back. 
Charlie, oh you really know how to bury so a when lead. you die that young, Jesus, yeah, everything else is kind of kind of mild. Wow. Do you have any? Did you have any memory of the moment of like being unconscious? I remember the whole thing. I remember going into convulsions in the backseat of my mom's car. I oh. remember all of the nurses and the doctor trying to hold me down on the table. Um, oh I remember looking down on everybody from somewhere near the <gasps> roof. And I remember Whoa. having the choice of whether to go back in my body. Huh. Um, now, the funny thing about joining the Army is I didn't do that in the conventional sense either. I was 29 when I joined. Most people join when they're 18. And I joined out of boredom. What were you doing at mm -hmm. the time? I was working as a stuntman. Okay. I was, you know, getting hit by cars and thrown downstairs and Boring. fighting wow. with little Japanese men in spandex. Uh, <laughs> On the weekends, but then you were also doing stuntman stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so America needs a few good Frosty the Snowmen and you sign up. And this was, what year was it? Uh, 97. You end up where? First, Fort Benning, Georgia, for basic training, mm -hmm. where I was two years older than my senior drill sergeant. Also, already a black belt martial artist, uh, an expert with pistols and rifles, already knew how to survive in the wilderness and knew how to repel and rig better than they did. So they got to teach me how to make the bed with hospital corners. <laughs> did the drill uh, sergeant insult you and stuff when they were doing the training? Oh, well, it's, it's funny. They look at your packet when you first come in the first day and, you know, they sit everybody down. And it's the last time they're nice to you generally until you graduate. They pull your folder out and they call your name and they say, stand up, tell me who you are, where you're from, why you joined, just a little bit about yourself. And most people had the same story. Yeah, I'm Joe Schmucky from Pocatello, Idaho. <laughs> I was in high school before this and I joined because I didn't know what else to do. And the drill sergeant pulls my file and he looks at it and goes, okay, which one of you knuckleheads is Parrish? And I raise my hand and he goes, you used to do what? I was a stuntman drill sergeant. And he just set my folder aside, pulled the next folder, and called the next name. <laughs> oh. As things would go on, because I was older than them and, I, and they knew what I did, they would abuse us all equally. They'd have us doing push-ups and, and running and flutter kicks and screaming at us and calling us names. And when it was all done and everybody was staggering away, one of them would come up to me and lean over and go, of course you know this had nothing to do with you. <laughs> Once you were out of training, what is the most typically fear-fraught situation that you were in once you were in active duty? We were the unit that closed down our bases in Haiti. This would be back in 98. So we were down there providing security for the Air Force and Navy medics and, and nurses and the humanitarian assistance mission. And it was not uncommon for the Haitians to spontaneously riot. And it was really strange because it's not like one person would get mad and then the person next to them and then it'd be this whole swell. An entire crowd of 200 people would get mad all at once for reasons that would remain unknown. You've got 200 people, yeah, they're not armed, but they're throwing bricks at your head. And you've got a very stringent set of rules of engagement that you have to abide by. And you really don't want to hurt these people. You're down there to help. But then again, they're throwing bricks at your head. It wasn't necessarily fear personally but i you know i was concerned for my guys we we're providing security at a, a monastery where they were doing a, a clinic you know taking care of people and their injuries and one of my guys that was uh lining people up in their prospective triage lines was probably 50 yards from the gate when a riot started hmm. now i'm on the roof of the building so i can see everything 
and I'm armed with a shotgun, and I see he's 50 yards away and surrounded. And I called, you know, one of our other guys who was a behemoth. I mean, he was three and a half feet wide at the shoulders and had arms bigger around than my legs. And I yelled at him. I'm like, Lloyd, to your left, 50 yards, go get him. And he just bulldozed through 100 Haitians and Mm -hmm. grabbed our buddy and brought him back. That was the thing that worries me is not being able to reach somebody that I'm responsible for. I've spent a lot of time in self-reflection about this. Everything I do is kind of geared towards protecting other people. As a stuntman, I'm there to do the action so that the actor doesn't get hurt. Why? Because I know how and I know I'm sturdy. As a professional bodyguard, I'm there to keep people safe. As a martial artist, I learn these things so that I can stop fights, not start them. Uh, As a soldier, I was there to protect people. And I extended that protection to all the guys in my unit. So I wasn't worried for me. I was just driven to change places with them because if it were me out there, I wouldn't be worried. Charlie, I think I love you. (laughs) (laughs) I've fallen in love with you. (laughs) It's a common feeling when one first meets Charlie Parrish. It happened to my husband first in an airport. He managed those feelings. It was passed on to me. Yes. It's incredible. But I I love you as much as I now hate myself after hearing your your stories. I hate myself, Charlie. (laughs) That also is a common symptom of hanging out with Charlie Parrish. Yeah. I just want to ask Charlie one more question. From what I understand, you do some public speaking now where you talk to people about fear. Is this correct? Mm -hmm. What do you tell them? That is correct. What do you tell them? There's a process to understanding fear. And there's a mountain lion story uh, that, that demonstrates it. We own property in an area of Texas called the Big Bend. It's still very wild. And we used to go down there all the time when I was young. And one of my favorite things would be to climb this hill that overlooked this spring in the middle of the desert. It's been there forever. And I would go there in the wee hours of the morning, in the pre-dawn hours, because all of the nocturnal animals would go there to drink before they went to sleep. And all of the diurnal animals would come out and start their day there. So you'd see this incredible changing of the guard. And I'm sitting there watching this happen, and I hear this rumble to my left, And I turn and look, and there is a full-grown mountain lion less than six feet away. I thought, I can't run because it'll chase me and kill me. I'm just going to sit here and see what happens. And it looked at me and walked on past and walked down to the spring, and all the other animals moved out of the way slowly, and it had its drink, and then it walked back up the hill right past me again. So at that point, there was no more fear. There's no more concern. It was more of a fascination of, Wow, look how that worked. So one of the things I tell people is, generally, if you run from your fears, they're going to catch you. But the closer you get to the things you fear, the better chance you have of understanding them. Then as you understand your fear, it becomes familiar to you. It becomes exciting to you, kind of like riding a roller coaster. The first time you get on, you don't know what's going to happen. You're terrified. But after you've done it, you want to get back on the roller coaster. Or as a stuntman, the first time you do a high fall from 50 feet up into an airbag, that airbag looks like a postage stamp. But after you survive it, you go, oh my God, that was so cool. I must have looked really cool doing that. I want to do it again. So as you become more familiar with your fear, it becomes an excitement thing. Once you approach it enough, that excitement becomes familiarity, and then it becomes more of a cerebral thing. Then you recognize what it is that's 
fear and it becomes information. And then you can place that information on other things like the things that you fear most often are fearful of you too. The people that you're afraid of are responding out of their own fear. So then fear can become compassion. Compassion for yourself, but also compassion for others. And you recognize that when somebody's coming at you with anger, it's usually based in fear. When people are coming at you with aggression, it's based in fear. And instead of going, well, I'm just going to get angry too, you can go, I, I get where you're coming from. I understand. You're afraid. Come here. Let me pat you on the head. It's all going to be okay. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so that's a short version. So I don't know if I'm more impressed that Charlie used the word diurnal or that you stared down a mountain lion. It's really close for me because I don't, <laughs> I had to like place the word diurnal in context. It took me like a minute and then I figured it out. Not words in my vocabulary. I figured it out too, Jenny, but what did you figure it out to be? <laughs> I don't know. It's something. I forget. It's something with nocturnal. I yeah. don't. It's diurnal animals that come out during the day as opposed to nocturnal animals. It's exactly it. Right. Could it, the fear talk, do you do that just for like anybody or is it for a specific population like for for vets? It's for anybody. Okay. And yeah. it's for everybody because we all feel fear. When I leave this planet, I want to leave it way better than how I found it somehow. And oh, and if I can do that by spreading a little information and, and a little freedom from fear, then awesome. You know, because when I was a kid, oh. I didn't have a dad growing up. I, you know, I had to yeah. look towards movies guys like Errol Flynn and Douglas Fairbanks and Humphrey Bogart and John Wayne. Yeah. And if I could repay all of the gifts that those guys gave me, that would be the way I'd want to do it. So when I was 15, I had scoliosis, so I wore a back brace. I had to wear the back brace for three years, and it was really, really hard. The kids had this name for me. They called me Jew whore. Oh. Unrelated to scoliosis, <laughs> but that's a just stinker. a bummer. That's like a slow <laughs> yeah, stinker. That's a singer. That's a singer. I have pathetically not put that on Twitter because that's one of my good singers that I just tell in stand up. So I have to save it, oh. which is so sad. Anyway, but so I had scoliosis. So I was wearing this back brace with just sort of like a plastic corset. And I was already thin. The corset thing was holding me in. And I ended up getting mono. I go to the doctor and they take the little uh, brace off me. And the doctor sees that my stomach looks really extended. And I just thought that I was like, you know, I gained some weight. And I do x-rays. They kind of rush it because the doctor sees that something is really fucked up. It was actually like the talk of the Pittsburgh medical community. I had an eight pound tumor. It was the size of a basketball. It was all localized. It was this huge big ball in my stomach. So everyone at the hospital uh, assumed I was pregnant. Now, how old were you? And I was you? like, no, like I, I was 15 and I had not had sex. I'd done everything else, but <laughs> I hadn't had sex. <laughs> okay, so that's true. <laughs> That's right. It was so rushed. Once they saw the x-ray and they saw that I had that mass, they were like, oh, this needs to come out so long ago. This needs to come out like tomorrow. So they literally were like, 
pack a bag. We're going to go to the hospital tonight. And I was very in the dark about what was going on. But they they rushed me into a surgery the next day, took it out. But the day before I had the surgery, I just knew that I was going to get it. And these doctors came in the room and were like, okay, so we don't know if it's localized or not. Like they knew that they from the x-ray, they could tell that it was pretty together. But they didn't know if it was spread throughout my lungs. They didn't know what they were going to have to remove. So it was only 12 hours before I was going to have it. So I really like barely slept. There was actually, I think there was like a Madonna rockumentary or whatever that was on VH1. I just kept watching it, but not knowing what was going to happen that night was scary. And I mean, it was scary, but the thing is I had such blind faith in my parents and in it's like I, I, I very stupidly had like assumed that stuff was going to be pretty much okay. So even though that was very scary, for a while I used to like to psych myself up for things. And the things that I psych myself up for are like, it's like so sad after Charlie was talking, but improv shows, <laughs> open mics. <laughs> um, Remember, Charlie's yeah. only fear was about being on stage. That's true. That's true. To even pinpoint it, the scariest part of the night before the surgery that night we still didn't know all the info some doctors came in to like tell me and my mom what was going on and they told us some stuff and my mom just looked at me and started to like cry hysterically and it was very scary because it was really like she was looking at like a dead person and then i and then i definitely reacted with anger like charlie was talking about i was afraid but i was so i was like get it together mom like you can't do that in front of me another thing that charlie was talking about how people react with anger when they're afraid. So I really delayed shaving my head because the thing that really was bumming me out the most was that I was gonna lose my hair. And I was in, I mean, people have made fun of me for saying this because it sounds so fake and lame, but I say I was in a fast crowd in high school. I was in like the cool crowd. It was, you know, like we would like party and drink and hook up with guys. Like that was like the cool stuff we did. And I was just, sort of I'm ashamed but the thing that bummed me out the most was the idea that I was going to lose my hair and this would make me so uncool so anyway I delayed shaving it finally it was just falling out in clumps and like people could sort of tell because my like sweater would be matted with hair so I had it shaved before I went to school one day and I put on a wig and when I got home that day I hadn't even looked at the shaved head yet because I told the the guy the hairdresser to just put the wig on so I wouldn't even have to look at it yet because I was kind of so upset but I got home and I took off the wig and I saw he shaved it and when you have chemo it makes you it made my scalp very sensitive and it also does other weird things like it, it changes the way that you taste things and stuff it has weird side effects but with the way he shaved it to try to not hurt me, it wasn't shaved that well. Like there were some sort of like long parts. It looked bad, you know what I mean? Mm. It looked like right before like in like the French Revolution when they were gonna like shave someone's head and like there were like horrible little strings. And anyway, my dad got home (laughs) and my dad is this like irate lawyer. He's like a screaming lawyer, cliche. He saw my head and he he immediately just started screaming at my mom. She looks like a moron. How could they like do this to her? She looks horrible. How could you let this happen? And was just, you know, he was so mad, but it was so clear to me then that he was upset. But anyway, I used to use that to kind of psych myself up before shows or whatever, but you know, it kind of stopped working because it's like I was, Google didn't even exist when this was happening. And so now if I'd had this diagnosis, I would be like so racked with anxiety, but I didn't even, I didn't even really know what was going on. So like, I don't really look at that as like me beating cancer at all. I look at that as my mom, also a lawyer. She took off six months. She slept with me in the hospital every day. You know, she was amazing. She, 
I, I watched movies constantly in the hospital when I watched every Elizabeth Taylor movie and she was kind of an inspiration to me. She had some kind of brain surgery. She also lost her hair. My mom had her write to me and like yeah. she wrote me this little letter. She just signed it. I'm sure obviously her assistant wrote the letter, but whatever. Anyway, now I only feel fear in, in a professional context of work at The Onion. When I first started there, it was very scary reading my headlines in front of everyone. Um, because, you know, people don't laugh. And um, especially in the beginning, I was not anyone's friend. And um, that was really scary. And I guess I usually respond in a way that's bad where there's immediate, there's like blood. There's just like red rage that I feel. Do you, not to stoke the fear fire, but do you ever have fear that it will come back? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's like, I do have fear that it'll come back. And so I'm very interested in like, you know, whenever I could get some little nugget about like anti-cancer stuff, I always feel like that if there's some weird health thing, I'm going to have it because, you know, it was really only cancer and scoliosis, but none of my friends had those things. And so... <laughs> Well, I mean, I always feel like some weird thing's going to be wrong with me. One thing that I just realized for the first time was I'm 29. I mean, I never thought about um, whether or not the chemo messed up my, oh, I have one ovary. Supposedly I can have kids, but whatever. I think about the cancer coming back and I think about, oh, maybe I'm infertile. It's a stressor. It's majorly a stressor. But it's like when I get stressed about that stuff, I really think like, pathetically like eyes on the prize which always for me adds up to like my next career move right and then I just try to like channel it out yeah I know cancer is the scariest thing um out there yeah. one of the most scariest things but I think it's possible that an, a hostile writer's room might be the second yes and, and and the room that I'm in now is really really friendly and not hostile but in the beginning my personality is very different from pretty much everyone else in the room and that I'm pretty like extroverted. Everyone else there is very introverted and, and takes longer to warm up to people. I try to be like empathetic and get that because I love introverted people who are sort of quiet because I feel like they're so much more real than I am. Mm. Um, but it, it can be pretty shitty. But I've only been in this one room except no, I was in that other room. Um, a room with Matt Flanagan. And uh, and that was, I guess, that was actually very hostile too, even though I didn't have to participate in it because I was a writer's assistant. I don't remember anything about that time. <laughs> Honestly, though, the, when you said fear, I was like, gee, I guess the last time that I really felt sustained bodily fear was when I was, I knew for one week that I was going to be fired from that job. I was a writer's assistant on a show that was canceled pretty quickly but before it was canceled I was working on it it was my first job out of grad school I moved to LA with my boyfriend and I was to me it really felt like sort of making it I was doing an okay job as a writer's assistant but the Shirley didn't really thought that I sucked and I was basically put on notice one week before I was fired but I mean I hadn't been fired before knowing that I was going to be fired was really scary and my only job at the job was like to take notes while people were writing in the room and to correct the script which was kind of like supersized on the wall on a screen and I wasn't correcting the script fast enough for the showrunner's taste and so when I would get home I had my boyfriend pretend that he was the showrunner and berate me as I and, and tell me to make changes in a script and like berate me as I did it and we like tried that as like a you know training tool and didn't work but it was actually great it, 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 such a cliche it was nice that I was fired because then 
I got hired at The Onion pretty quickly after that. Well, if it's any consolation, my husband was scraped off that show like an eight-pound tumor, too. So we have full empathy <laughs> for that situation. That's true. Past is past. <laughs> Um, That's right. But I do like your method of conquering fear through simulation. I like that strategy. Yes, that was a cool strategy. So this is an audio podcast, so listeners can't see what I see, which is Charlie Parrish sitting in almost total darkness in his home in Texas with a little half smile as he listens to two white Jewish neurotics. Oh my God. (laughs) Charlie, what's on your mind? You know, it's... You guys live in a vastly different world than I do. And it's it's fascinating to me. No, I mean that in a great way. It's fascinating to me because I don't do stand up. I you know I've I've dabbled in improv comedy, but once I took a car ride with Matt Flanagan and John Ray and heard them doing every conceivable commercial they could think of as Christopher Walken, I realized, <laughs> yeah, I didn't even dabble. So it's really fascinating to hear your stories and it just it makes me think of how different people deal with fear jenny spira you dealt with what scares people to death as a 15 year old you had an eight pound tumor that's a tumor the size of my head yeah and instead of calling it quits instead of saying yeah i'm i'm giving up you got angry and you know with the love and support of your family you beat it I've known people, vital, strong, intelligent, crazy, brave people who, as soon as they heard the word cancer, a week later, they were dead. Mm. Fear mm. killed them. Yeah. So don't sell yourself short. That's a, that's a huge fear that you fought through. And the fact that you tell it with such humor and so off the cuff, that's, that's amazing. I love hearing people's stories. Because I assimilate those stories. I'm a storyteller. I'm from a family of storytellers. It's how we've transmitted our family history for a hundred generations. So it's how I put together the mosaic of the world around me is by hearing other people's stories. That's why Mm -hmm. I'm smiling because I'm cataloging these stories going, wow, that's a different way to approach it. Yeah. All right. So we're going to wrap up this episode of Tell It Anyway with a game. We're going to play a game called Charlie Parrish Versus. (laughs) How does Charlie Parrish handle each fearful situation in like 15 seconds? All right. Charlie Parrish versus Tornado. Oh, been there. We were actually, uh, when I was a kid, I was probably seven. We were fixing a fence uh, outside of our home, outside the town of Louisville, Texas, when a tornado came. And we were too far from the house to get to the house, but there was an irrigation ditch between us and the house, and we dove into the ditch, and I watched the tornado pass, I don't know, 30 yards past my feet. Watched it go right over us. Went in between my house and the neighbor's house, which were separated by about 300 yards, and peeled the paint off of that side of the house. All right. Charlie Parrish versus Great White Shark. Oh, yeah. I just don't go in the ocean. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of, I sink like a stone. It, it, a shark doesn't want to eat me because I'm going to drag them down to the bottom and we're both going to die. Charlie Parrish versus the devil. Oh, yeah. Been there, too. <laughs> um, I bet. Uh, 
See, I've been the devil in some of those situations. <laughs> and the devil that most people see, he's an amateur. <laughs> the devil is, and this is just one guy's philosophy, the devil is not something outside of us. The devil is that voice inside of us that tells us to be less than we can be. So this has been incredible. And I'm so glad that I finally got Charlie Parrish on tape telling a couple of his stories. And I guess I, I'm really glad I got the chance to learn more about some of the stuff you told us today. But Spira, I am never going to forget, never forget that you revealed today that you were part of the cool crowd. Don't you think that got past oh. me? Oh, God. It's so <laughs> pathetic that I still hold on to it. It's like my one thing. <laughs> Who knew the storytelling podcast about fear would turn into a clinic on how to conquer it? I guess it's just like that proverbial box of fear chocolate. You never know what you're going to get. All right. Check us out at at tell it any on Twitter. And you can write to us at tell it anyway at gmail.com. Oh, and don't forget, if you ever want brilliantly constructed jokes in your life, uh, follow Jen Spira on Twitter. That's uh, twitter.com slash Jen, S-P-Y-R-A. And come on, you know you're going to go follow Charlie Parrish at twitter.com uh, stunt grunt. Or you can check out his website at charlieparrish.com. That's P-A-R-R-I-S-H. Go do it. <laughs> <laughs>